0: When I was in my first year of university, I remember reading a short story by Tolstoy that was unforgettable. Tolstoy tells a story about an ambitious Russian peasant who is seeking to make a fortune east of the Volga River. And he comes into contact with shrewd Bashkir tribesmen who offer him something that the peasant named Peihan cannot resist. The tribesmen say, For a thousand rubles, we will give you as much land as you can walk around in during a day. So you've got to start at dawn and you've got to be back. Yes, to clarify, yes, by sunset. And so Peihan pays the thousand rubles. And he begins walking. And if he had kept walking at a leisurely pace, he could have had an enormous amount of land. But his greed gets the better of him. And he begins to jog. He begins to run. And as he thinks about all the land he could be getting, he runs even harder and harder and harder. And he makes it back to the place where he began just before sunset, But then he collapses, blood trickles out of the side of his mouth, and he dies. And Tolstoy asked the question, how much land does a man need? One of the earlier services, I thought, I need to bring woman into this phrase. So I I got confused and I said, how much woman does a man, (laughs) different message altogether. (laughs) So let me focus here since we're going online. How much land does a woman need, we could ask. Or let's use the phrase person or or the word person. How much money does a person need? How much influence does a person need? How much fame does a person need? How many pleasurable experiences does a person need? And many people in our society would say more, more, more. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has said the purpose of life is not the accumulation of material possessions, but the maturation of our soul. The purpose of life is not the accumulation of material possessions or anything else, whether money or fame or whatever. It is the maturation or the maturing of our soul. We're in a series on the I am statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. And today we're going to be looking at his famous I am statement from John 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. Where does he say these words? He says them on the night before he is crucified on a Roman cross he is gathered with some of his closest students in an upper room in Jerusalem, enjoying a final meal with them. They finish the meal. They make their way out of the walled city of Jerusalem. They're walking northeast through a place called the Kidron Valley. And apparently as they're walking, they see a grapevine. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, when Jesus uses the expression vine in their world, what does vine symbolize to everyone? It symbolizes to God's people, the Israelites, that the vine is the nation of Israel or the people of Israel. In this ancient, arid part of the world, the vine was considered the most valuable plant because it was able to provide a drink at a relatively low cost for people. Unlike Vancouver, where it rains a lot, in this part of the world where there would be long stretches without any rain, the vine could provide a drink that would offer nourishment and life. Israel was this vine In Psalm 80, we read that God brought a vine out of Egypt and placed it in the promised land. And Israel as a people was to offer, like a good vine, nourishment and life for the world. But according to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5, the vine of Israel didn't provide great grapes for people. Mostly wild and bitter ones instead of nourishing and sweet ones. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is saying, I am the one who will fulfill Israel's call and offer nourishment and life for the world. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And then he says, my father is the gardener. Jesus in this passage is saying, I am the true vine. We who are connected to him are the branches. And that the father, meaning God, is the gardener. That's a very humble way to refer to God. God is a gardener. God is our helper. God is the one who serves us by pruning us so that we will bear more fruit Then he says in verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. If we are not connected to the vine, if we are not carrying anything of the life of Jesus, Jesus says, we'll be cut off. Boy, that's a strong but loving warning. If we are separated, if we don't remain connected to the vine and we're not producing fruit over a long period of time, it's like we're a dead branch. Fit for what? Maybe the green bin or to be tossed onto a bonfire. This is a strong but loving warning. And then Jesus says later in verse 2, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So if we are connected to the vine, who is Jesus? If we are receiving his nourishment, Jesus says, my father, that is God, will prune you in some way so that you bear even more fruit. What does fruit refer to in the context? Well, when Jesus speaks about fruit, he is referring to the fruit of his character, The fruit of his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that can be manifest through us. When he uses the word fruit, he's also talking about how his life can be manifest through us to others. Making us a gift to the world, especially in so far as our life somehow draws people closer to God. So to put it in modern, succinct terms, fruit is simply the character and the contribution that Jesus wants to bring through us to the world. Some years ago, my wife and I went to a vineyard up in the lower mainland, and uh, we were there and we got Uh, greeted by the manager who was about to give us a tour and as she was taking us to the field she mentioned this by the way is the pruning season and and so she pointed us to the vine and uh, the vines look pathetic and the manager said these these vines have been completely pruned back so all that remains are the two branches that you see in this image now Uh, it looked terrible in my estimation, but the manager explained that unless the vine is completely pruned of all of its branches except the two, and it's, as you can see, in the shape of a cross, it will not produce the best grapes and therefore will not produce great wine. And if we want to produce the best possible grapes through our life or fruit and great wine, in a manner of speaking, we will experience pruning. And pruning uh, in the text means cleansing. It's the, word, it's the Greek word kathori, which is the base for our word cathartic, cathartic, which means to cleanse or to purify or to purge. Now, how does this pruning or cleansing happen in our life? According to... Verse three, Jesus says, you are already clean. Same words, you are already kathara. You are already pruned, he says to his students. Because of the word I have spoken to you. How does Jesus prune us or how does the Father God prune us? He prunes us through the words of Jesus. Through the scriptures, through the gospels. Jesus says in in Scripture that we are to honor our parents, but we are to place God in a more central and important place in our lives than our own parents. And so sometimes when we put God first, it seems like we hate our parents in comparison. And across the years here at 10th, from time to time, I've had conversations, usually with young adults, who have shared their struggle about their parents wanting them to pursue a particular professional vocation, but they feel that God is leading them on another path. And when they choose what they sense is God's path over their parents' path, it feels like they're being pruned in some way, that they are cutting back their natural desire to receive their parents' approval. In other situations, uh, people in our faith community have talked about how they feel that they're supposed to be with another person as in a partner of some kind, but their parents really want them to be with someone else. Maybe not someone else in particular, but someone else of a different background or you know, on a different pro- professional track. And by saying yes to what they understand to be God's path. They are experiencing a kind of pruning from the need to receive their parents' approval. Jesus also says in his great Sermon on the Mount: Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In our modern context, he might add, where inflation can diminish the treasure. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven with God where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And when we encounter the words of Jesus, we are pruned from perhaps a natural tendency like pehon to make the goal of our life the accumulation of money or material possessions which will not ultimately last. We're pruned of that value system. And instead, as Abraham was saying earlier, we want to live and give generously to things that will last forever. So we can be pruned. We can be cleansed through the words of Jesus so that we bear more fruit. And sometimes the word of Jesus comes to us, not so much from scripture, but from a kind of direct impression on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. A number of years ago... When I was single, in the sense of not married, I was in a dating relationship with someone, it was going pretty well. But I really wanted God's guidance on the relationship as to whether we were to move it to the next level or not, to, to marriage or not. And as I prayed earnestly, I had this clear sense, I won't get into all the details as to how I sense this, but it was very clear that we weren't supposed to be together. So we broke up, it was, it was lonely, at least for me and, and initially, Uh, and there was, you know, no other relationship, at least on my horizon, I felt like it was a pruning. You know, when I was in my adolescent years, just coming to know Jesus, sports were a very important part of my life. I didn't receive a direct word from Jesus here, but I sensed that it would be wiser to invest a little less time in sports. I was receiving some well-meaning peer pressure from friends to invest even more time in sports, But I felt that while I shouldn't cut out sports, that it should become less of a centerpiece in my life so that there would be room for other things. As some of you know, when I was working in the corporate world, I had long, long work days. You know, from seven in the morning till 11 at night. And, you know, I didn't, I wanted to advance in the company, but I sensed God calling me to seek to become more human, to take a Sabbath, to to try as I might to to boundary my work and to, to serve as a volunteer in my local church. It was a kind of pruning that was happening for me. Sometimes pruning can occur through loss, through something that we lose in our life. Now, I'm not saying that if you lose, for example, your health or a loved one or a job or something else, that that necessarily is the direct intervention of God. I am not saying that. Sometimes we lose something just as part of the normal course of life. And, and sometimes we don't know until years later, looking back, whether something was a, a loss in the normal course of life or something that God had pruned in our life. But even though we don't know necessarily whether something is a pruning or just a loss as life goes on, if we experience the loss of something, and we have more space and we don't need to fill it right away, why not use that space as a place to receive the nourishment of Jesus? Do you know what sucker branches are? If you're a gardener, you probably know, or if you've studied gardening. A sucker branch is a branch on a plant that looks leafy and and, and pretty good, like this one right here. This is a tomato plant but it bears no fruit at all. And so a sucker branch sucks away nutrients from the plant that could otherwise be given to branches that actually bear tomatoes or grapes or plums or whatever. And so gardeners will cut back these sucker branches so that more of the nourishment of the plant can be directed toward producing fruit in the plant. And sometimes God will prune us. God will cleanse us, cut out things, cut back things, so that more of the nourishment of Jesus's life can be directed toward those parts of our life that can actually bear the fruit of his character, that can offer the fruit of his contribution in the world. But just because we are pruned or experience some kind of loss, It doesn't automatically mean that we will be more fruitful, that we will bear more of the fruit of Jesus' character. As you may know from experience or the observation of others, sometimes when someone experiences a loss, they become bitter, not better. Why do some people become bitter instead of better in the face of adversity or loss or some kind of cutback? That's, it's, a, it's a mystery that no one fully understands. But Jesus, in this passage, invites us to pursue a way of life that will enable us, no matter what our circumstances, to bear more of the fruit of his life and character in us. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Dallas Willard is the perceptive writer in the spiritual life. He comments on this verse, and he says, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Our capacity to bear the fruit of Christ's character is utterly dependent on our connection with him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But then Dallas Willard says this, but if we simply do nothing, we will remain apart from him. Does that make sense? So apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, right? We can do nothing apart from him in terms of bearing fruit. But if we do nothing, if we're totally passive, we will remain apart from him. And so while fruit bearing is primarily God's work in us, we have a role. And what is that role? According to the passage, it is to remain in Jesus. Verse four, remain in me, Jesus says, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit By itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So our role in the fruit bearing is what? Is to simply remain in Jesus. The Greek word is the word meno, and it can be also translated abide in Jesus. The word abide in its noun form is what? Abode. And the word abode in English, in the Old English, can be a synonym for house or home. And so we could loosely translate this verse: make your home in Jesus, make your abode in Jesus. In John chapter 1, we read about how two disciples, they're probably Andrew and John, approach Jesus and they ask him this question: where are you making your home? And Jesus responds: come and see. And so Andrew and John go and see where Jesus is staying. And the passage says, and that day, the disciples, Andrew and John, made their home with Jesus. And part of the way we abide in Jesus, remain in Jesus, is by making our home with Jesus. So what does that mean in actuality? You know, if you make your home with someone... It probably means, it hopefully means that every once in a while you share a meal with the person or the people that you are living with. And so, one of the ways you can make your home with Jesus is, in a manner of speaking, to share a regular meal with Him. When I was in my student years, I had a a mentor named Lyle, and, and we were at the school cafeteria one day, and we had our trays, and I can't remember how it came up, but. My mentor, Lyle, said, uh, every day I like to spend time with Jesus in the morning, uh, praying in in scripture, and I see my time with Jesus as a meal that I share with him. A meal where I'm nourished and fed through prayer, through scripture. And then he mentioned, I don't want to be sort of, you know, really rule bound by this or rigid, but I think about how I might share a meal with a person and how much time I would spend. And that becomes a guide for me in terms of how much time I spend with Jesus. And uh, this person, I wish you could meet him uh, someday. He just had a a radiance about him, which I'm pretty sure came from the radiance he received from Jesus and the nourishment and the love he received from Jesus as he shared meals with Jesus, as he remained in Jesus's love. So find a way, find a rhythm in your life to be able to, in a manner of speaking, feed on Jesus in your hearts by faith, by sharing a meal with him, by spending quality time with Jesus that, that builds you up and it will certainly give Jesus life as well. You know, when you are sharing a house with someone, hopefully, you know, whether it's with your family or with friends, you serve with them in some way. You know, growing up, I, I, I had four siblings, and I did my share of chores, cutting the grass, you know, d- during, during the season where the grass was growing, uh, cooking, doing dishes when it was my turn. And uh, in our little uh, family now, we, you know, we not only live together, but we also seek to serve together. So yesterday, we had some Boy Scouts come by the house. We knew this was happening. And they dropped off 15 burlap sacks of soil for our vegetable garden. Uh, so Joey and I were emptying the, the burlap bags, they're compostable, into our little vegetable garden. And then Joey uh, uh, was cutting the grass. I said, Joey, could you cut the grass as well while, you, while we're out here? And, uh, and, and he wasn't super happy about it, to be honest. But uh, my wife said, hey, how about service with a smile? <laughs> I was, I was weeding the, the backyard. You know, when you live with people, whether they're family or roommates or whatever, uh, it's not uncommon to serve with them. And that's a good way to connect with them. It's a good way to, to be a faithful steward of you know, your home or, and your resources. And when it comes to, and again, speaking metaphorically, the house of God, because the whole world is really God's house. One of the ways that we can make our home with Jesus is by serving. And as we are in a rebuilding mode as we make our way out of the pandemic. Lots of opportunities to serve, lots of needs, and lots of uh, opportunities. As Abe mentioned, uh, we would invite you to check out the volunteer volunteer fair, volunteer, volunteer fair in the lower east hall after the service, just down the stairs here. And uh, opportunities around being a greeter, kids ministry, other areas. Uh, that's a way to make your home with. Jesus as well. I was recently talking to someone in our faith community here at 10th, and, and this person has given me permission to share part of the conversation. I don't want you to feel, if you talk to me, it might go public. Is it? I'll ask your permission first. Um, but I asked him if I could share this, and he said, fine. Um, we were talking, and he mentioned, and he's a very successful person in his professional field, that uh, at the end of his life, He would deem his life as being truly successful if his children, who are now quite young, embrace a faith in Jesus and choose to continue to follow him for the rest of their lives. You know, this person in our faith community didn't mention anything about, you know, some professional achievement or something along those lines. His work is important to him. But he mentioned how he wants in his own life, to follow Jesus faithfully. And somehow through his life, that Jesus through his life would inspire his own kids to do the same. Now, as we, especially we who are parents know, every child, every person has a free will. So this is not something that we can actually control. But I love that intention. I love that noble desire that so pleases God. In contrast to Pehon, I later thought, the, the central character of Tolstoy's story, how much land does a man need? This person didn't say, I will deem my life a success if I have lots of properties here in Vancouver or vacation properties somewhere else or this much money or this many professional achievements. No, his heart is to bring the life of Jesus to his world, especially those that are closest to him, including his own kids. What a, what a beautiful desire. Robert Fulgham, some years ago, wrote a book with a great title. All I Really Need to Know I Learned in, do you know the title? Kindergarten. It's a best-selling book with such a great title. All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And Robert Fulgham loved to bring people together, and he would invite a speaker, and the speaker would speak. There'd be a Q&A afterwards, and then as a joke, Fulgham would turn to the speaker and say, now tell us the meaning of life. Everyone would laugh and then go home. And one time, Fulgham invited a monk from Cyprus to speak, to give the talk. So the monk from Cyprus gives a talk. There's a Q&A afterwards. And then as a joke, Fulgham steps forward and says, now tell us the meaning of life. Everyone laughs. They get up to go home. But, but the monk says, stop, stop. I, I actually have an answer to that question. What is the meaning of life? And he pulled out his wallet um, and didn't reach for a bill. But instead, he reached for a small mirror. And uh, this mirror is actually bigger than that mirror, I'm sure, but let me use it as a prop. He said, when I was a young boy, I loved to play with a mirror and I loved to catch the sunlight and reflect it, you know, in different directions, on different things, or maybe people. Sorry, I didn't mean to blind you there with the, with the, with the stage lights here. Um, and he said, as an adult, I came to realize that the meaning of life is to catch the sunlight of God and then reflected to others. That's it. That's the meaning of life. You can go home, he said. You know, when we spend time in the light of God's presence, receive that light, or to use the words of John 15, when we receive the nourishment from the vine, in the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, we experience the maturation of our souls and we have more light and more fruit and more of the gifts of Jesus's presence in us to offer the world. And according to verse eight, we glorify God our father and we show that we are really Jesus's disciples. Let's pray together. Do you wanna show to your own life To God and humbly to others that you are a disciple of Jesus, that you really are. Then perhaps in the quietness of your spirit, pray to Jesus, say, I I consent to your work in my life. I'm open to your work in my life. If I need to be cleansed or pruned, cleanse me, prune me, I'm open. You can pray that in your own words. If I need to be rearranged, do that. And if you'd like, you can pray, Jesus, show me how to abide in you. Show me how to make my home with you and let the Spirit speak to you. Show me how to make my home with you. And maybe Jesus invites you to spend time with him on a regular basis in a meal-like context, a spiritual meal-like context, or to serve in some other way. Just say, Jesus, help me to make my home with you. And as that happens, may you be nourished and may Jesus produce great wine through your life that will quench the thirst of the world and strengthen and beautify the world. May it be so for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.